this book that's called Jewish Mysticism and the Spiritual Life takes Jewish mystical texts and gives them to us refracted through the lens of teachers who are commenting on those texts. The texts are way often too esoteric for us. They are too coded for us. They use the language of Kabbalah, of Jewish mystical text, that is not a language we understand, and it's not a language that's directly translatable. It's like using jargon, you know, in a certain business, in certain areas of business, or using that alphabet soup, you know, that is uh, familiar to somebody who works in a hospital, but completely mysterious to somebody else. You can't just translate the words. You, those words are loaded with a whole history of meaning. So. We're looking at these, this is from Kabbalah, these texts are derived from Kabbalah, but we're not generally looking at the absolute, you know, first source. We're looking at it refracted through the lens of other masters and other teachers. And this book does this beautiful job of taking those texts, refracted through the lens of a teacher, meaning often from the Hasidic tradition, and then a contemporary teacher teaches on both of those. So it's, it's kind of a three-layer process so that we can finally get to a place where we can apprehend any of it, right? So it's, um, it's quite interesting material and uh, often quite hard to access if one isn't familiar with uh, the vocabulary. So we have been looking at the second part of this book. Last time we gathered, uh, we looked at the text uh, about holiness in the kitchen by Chava Weisler, uh, and I brought to you some of Joel Hecker's work on eating as a spiritual ecosystem. So if you have the book, you have Joel Hecker's long piece, uh, Eating as a Spiritual Ecosystem, which we touched on last time. Um, and this whole second part of the book is about embodied spiritual practice. So looking at some of the mystical teachings and some of the Hasidic writings on those uh, based on, in this part of the book, the second part of the book, on um, embodied religious experience, embodied spirituality. So I love that that is a topic for us. I love that there's a lot written on that for us because I love it that Judaism is not something that splits the material and the uh, uh, ethereal, you know, the spiritual from the lived human experience that we are a both and tradition that sees both of those as being necessary to the uh, human being having, or actually the spiritual being having a human experience, right? That those, that those are really, they go together. So this whole unit is on um, ways that we can understand our tradition as being one that really sees spirituality as something that we cannot separate from our physical selves, nor can we separate it from the physical world, the material world of which we're a part. All materiality, according to Kabbalah, is infused with the energy of the divine through which it was all created. It is not separate. It's different. There's different ways of being one, possibly material one, the, the realm of ideas, right? The realm of feeling, the realm of things that we can't touch or smell or taste or measure, but they are not unrelated in Judaism and in mysticism. So we're going to look at the third piece in this second part of the book called Loving God with the Evil Impulse, which already I love. Right? Don't you love that? 
Come on, what other tradition <laughs> is going to talk about loving God with the Yetzer Hara, the evil impulse? Because you know, normally in the West, because we're students of Greek philosophy, we in the West have bought the split right between the material and the spiritual, between good and bad. You know, between the natural being something that can corrupt us, our desires, our appetites, our animal self, versus our lofty, ideal, mental, abstract, spiritual, pure self. We've bought that split in the West. So even as Jews, we look at the title of a of a chapter that says, loving God with the evil impulse, and go, what? Like, what? Um, I love that. So, Danny Matt, I, I shouldn't be disrespectful, Daniel Matt, um, <laughs> who we love and adore uh, in, in our movement, um, is a an amazing scholar of Kabbalah, and his his real expertise is the literature of the Zohar, which is one of the Kabbalistic texts, the Book of Splendor. Uh, and so the Zohar is one of those coded, you know, books that you just can't read a translation of the Zohar and go, oh, wow, yeah. Right? You need Daniel Matt in order to read and in any way begin to comprehend the Zohar. Or people like him, right? These amazing scholars that translate it for us in a way that we can actually access it. So he takes a piece from the Zohar. So he's a piece of, so the actual piece we're getting, which is not usual for this book or for our studies with it, is we're getting an actual piece from the Zohar. So this is not refracted through the lens of Hasidism. It is straight from the Zohar. Um, and so we're going to read the text first, and then we're going to look at uh, Daniel Matt's uh, comments on it. And of course, we're going to have our own comments on it. And then I've prepared some notes for you. Um, I did some more digging uh, using his footnotes. I went digging around and got you uh, some of the source quotes so that you can just kind of find the layout of the text here in these notes in terms of the, the proof texts, you know, the quotes that he brings, and some other really groovy stuff. All right. So let's look at the text itself. My voice is failing, um, as we know. So who would be willing, who could be picked up by this microphone for the podcast to, uh, to read? Would you be willing to read? Great. <coughs> Some things I won't pronounce. No worries. <coughs> Rabbi El Azar said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Deuteronomy 651. With two hearts, namely two impulses. One, the good impulse, Yetzer Hatov. The other, the evil impulse, Yetzer Harab. How can a person love the Blessed Holy One with the evil impulse? Well, this is a greater service of the Blessed Holy One when the evil impulse is overturned by the love that one feels for him. This is the true love of the Blessed Holy One, since he knows how to draw that evil impulse to his service. Here is a mystery. Actually, the evil impulse is doing the will of his master. This may be compared to a king who had only one son whom he loved exceedingly. In the king's abode, outside, was a harlot. The king said, I want to see my son's devotion to me. He called for that harlot and said to her, Go and seduce my son. That harlot, what could she do? She went after his son and began embracing him, kissing him, seducing him with all kinds of enticements. 
If that son is worthy and obeys his father's command, he rebukes her, pays no heed to her, and thrusts her away from him. Then the father rejoices in his son and brings him into his palace, giving him gifts and presents and great honor. Who caused all this honor for that son? You must admit, that harlot. And that harlot, does she deserve praise for this or not? Surely she does from every aspect. First, because she carried out the king's command. And second, because she brought upon the son all this honor, all this goodness, all this love of the king toward him. Were it not for this accuser, the righteous would not inherit those supernal treasures reserved for them in the world that is coming. Therefore, the righteous should be grateful to him. All right, initial reactions to the text. Any? Maybe laugh. Maybe laugh. Tell me why. Because I like the juxtaposition. Of? The juxtaposition of? The evil and, and <coughs> the appreciation that the evil brought out the good. So, so it feels playful? Yeah, it felt, it felt very playful. It felt playful. So, and a really important thing to remember is that so often we read Talmud, we read Midrash, we read um, even Kabbalah, these are texts from those uh, parts of our tradition, and we're very studious, and we are very serious about interpreting them, interpreting them correctly, interpreting them, right, you know, in a way that makes us feel bright and insightful, and like, oh, I got it, I accessed that, awesome, right? Really, a lot of the times, the rabbis are writing with their tongue firmly planted in their cheek. <laughs> and we miss a lot if we're not willing to understand a lot of what they do as playful. This is an act of love for them. Study is an act of love. It's an act of accessing God. And they are very happy to play with God. That's what they do. That's where they find their delight. Um, and so, thank you for it's lifting fun. that up, that, it, that, that it's kind of fun, right? It's kind of playful if we're ready uh, to read it that way. Other reactions, Maddie? I almost felt like it could be a lesson in forgiveness, because there's so much that is done that's criminal, or, you know, just in, in, in numerous ways um, negative. But you can say, well, you know, that was put there so that we can react in a positive way. And I mean, it's going another step to say that we honor that person or, you know, that, that situation is something good, but, um, but in an exaggerated way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I kind of felt that from this. That, that some of those things are opportunities. Yeah, exactly. And it's some, a largely defined. And you have to have us. someone doing the evil if you're going to have the opportunity. Okay. Yeah. I'm confused. Who's. Evil impulse is, uh, is it the father? Whose impulse are we dealing with? Funny that you should say the king's. <laughs> right? Some might say it's actually the king who has a pretty evil impulse, which is to test his son. Right? But who else tested somebody in the Bible, right? God, God's self does this with Abraham, right? With so then not a few feminist scholars have pointed out that already that Abraham answers the way he does and lifts the knife, he fails the test. But some people want to go a step further and say a God who tests like this already, right, is a problem. Um, so very nice. So whose evil impulse is, is involved here? All right. So if we look at the example that we have, the, <laughs> the parable, right, that we have, 
The king wants to test the ability of his son, the prince, to resist the prince's own evil impulses <coughs> and to stay true to his honor as the prince, which, of course, is going to reflect on the father's honor, <coughs> and to resist the harlot that is sent to him to seduce him. And if he has honor for his father and his station and his position in the king's house, he will resist her, right? So that's whose impulse we're dealing with. <coughs> so, Amy? Yes. <coughs> it doesn't help. Thank you, though. It's in my lungs. Thank you. It's not my throat. If it helped, I would have a bag of them. I have a bag of them. It's asthma. It's... All right. So we're dealing with the the prince. <coughs> Look, please, on page eighty-seven. <coughs> <coughs> Somebody read at the bottom. Similarly. <coughs> Similarly, you should be grateful to the evil impulse that tests you, enabling you to wrestle with temptation and hopefully triumph over it. The appreciation of the evil impulse is, of course, uh, limited. Its value lies in the possibility of subduing it. You can express love for God with the evil impulse by defeating it. Yet the positive tone is remarkable. It is not enough to simply ignore or avoid the evil impulse. You have to face it and contend with it. Otherwise, your love of God is incomplete. Okay, so we're talking about, we're talking about the love of God, right? We're talking about the love of God and that it's incomplete without confronting the Yetzer Hara. Some of you learned with me before, have learned this with me before. In the Ve'ahavta, right? Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha, bechol what? Levavcha. your heart. Right. Bechol levavcha, right? How do you say heart in Hebrew? Lev. How do you say your heart in Hebrew? Levcha. Libcha. Right? So, what do we have here that's an anomaly? What's different? We have two vets. So the tradition says, this is, the Vahapta is revealed by God. It's in Torah. It's in Deuteronomy. If it's a revealed word of God, then there's got to be a reason that it doesn't say Lebcha. Right? Why isn't it the one bet that you'd expect from Lave heart? You add yours, you know, chafsafit, easy. So why do we have two bets? And the rabbis, there's lots of wonderful different versions of it, but they say because when you love God, our tradition teaches you must love God with both of your hearts. Two hearts. Your evil inclination and the good inclination. Because it's obvious to us we should love God with our good inclination, duh. Right? That's 
maybe even the definition of the good inclination, right? To love what is holy and good and righteous and sacred and true and wonderful, right? It's very much a challenge for me as a Westerner in particular to imagine that the rabbis are saying, you have to love God with both your inclinations, the good inclination and the evil inclination. So isn't it, you know, love God with all your heart? It's not with Mm -hmm. your heart. It's with all your heart, which... That could be this. Implying the good and the evil. So that could be this. So what they're asking is, why two? Right? And what they, their answer, why two bets, is because our heart is divided. Or our self. And for them, remember, in the ancient world, the heart is the seat of wisdom. Not the brain. So our self is really here for them. For, you know, our, our Jewish tradition, it's rooted here in the heart. Like, who we are is here, not here. This is so Western and modern and whatever that we're all in our heads. Like, we're so in our heads, our feet are right here, right? And, you know, they have a lot more space. You know, they're, they're, they have a lot more space between their feet and their chin, right? That, that, that yourself was in here, in the heart, and both of yourselves. So what is both of yourselves? Yes, all, yes, but, but specifically both of yourselves. The one that you would think is not involved in loving God. Davka, with that one, you have to serve God. Or else, as we see here, you're not loving God fully. You're not, your, your love of God is incomplete if it's only with the good part of you. What, what, what does this mean? Rabbi? Hang on, Mary? The idea of the divisions just reminds me of other divisions like dividing the day from the night. And there's a lot of division, which is a lot of judgment, like separation of all the intricacies. So I want to be clear that what you're saying, Mary, is that there's this reminds you that there's day separated into, I mean, time is separated into day and night, light and dark. Creation in the ancient world is separation. It is distinction. It is not judgment. It is only out of order can there exist all that we have. Otherwise, it is primordial chaos. So what made the rabbis very nervous is crossing the boundaries of categories. That makes them very nervous. We have lots of rituals that are around liminal times. You're not a child. You're not an adult. What do we do? Bar mitzvah. (laughs) Right? We have to do something around those liminal times because it's not this and it's not that. That makes them very nervous. Right? Torah is very clear that, that order out of chaos is how we have creation. So for them, that's a good thing. So those, those, this and that, this and that, those are very important. And without that, everything collapses into primordial ooze. Tohu vavohu, if you will. So the distinction, yetzer hatov, yetzer hara, is important. We have both. And we tend to judge the one. And that's why I love this text. It's because it's, like you say, it's, it's, it's saying, wait a minute, like we're so quick to judge one as good and, um, which it is, <laughs> um, but to say bad means, okay, somehow not related to the divine, not related to godliness in any way. And this says, Mm-mm, can't do that. Isn't like one like Satan almost? 
So we're going to get there. Sarah. Is there a commentary <coughs> around this that deals with the harlot and how she is used and disregarded? For me, one of the most difficult aspects of studying any of this material, any of the Kabbalah, any of, frankly, some of the traditions, you know, greatest literature is that the it's done by men. And so when they're going to think about what epitomizes my evil inclination, a beautiful woman who is unchaste and tempting me, right? That, that is the image. You know, we might say chocolate cake <laughs> as women, right? You know, we would have a much different understanding of what, what would be our most tempting thing to pull us off what we've committed to in terms of righteousness and goodness and, and you know, and what, I'm, what I'm committed to doing for the good. Um, for them, it was always a temptress. It was always sex, and it was always a woman tempting them. So that remains a difficulty, you know, for me also with the text. So she's, she's a vehicle. She's not a person. She's not, she has an agency. He's ordered by the king. It, you know, and, and that continues to bother me as a feminist, as a woman. It needs a rewrite. And it needs a rewrite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What struck me when I read it in the first part was that he was tempting him with a harlot instead of tempting him with food, or what was mostly the case in, with ancient kingdoms, is the temptation to overthrow his father and take power. That's what they all really <coughs> I don't know that they're unrelated. If the son can't temper his impulse to sleep with the harlot, will he be able to temper his impulse to overthrow his father? So I don't know. Later we see that sex, food, ambition, all of them are tied together in the Yetzir Hara. So, so on the one hand, yeah, why, why, why wouldn't it be something? Yeah. And it's like, that's, if, he can't, if he can't stop here, then dad better be really nervous, right, for how well his son is going to control his impulse to ambition and his impatience for power and his impatience to be somebody who doesn't have to check with somebody else, you know, in terms of what he wants to do. So are we to assume that God also has both of these selves? No. Even though God does wrathful things? No. Why? <laughs> because God is never in our tradition seen as evil. Okay. Never. So anything that's in the tradition that God does that is about wrathful is justified. Okay. Is because we have sinned. We have earned it. You know, we have somehow deserved it. Um, it is never understood that God is evil and coming out of some kind of evil desire to do something, God forbid, um, evil. That doesn't mean we haven't taken issue, many of us, with the character God in the Bible and, and, and the way that, that God behaves. Um, but, but within the tradition itself, it's never understood that that's for selfish purposes. You know, it's God's mission is a good one and a just one, and we get in the way of it a lot. Thank you. You talked in the beginning about, um, about Greek philosophy and it being binary, good and evil, black and white, night and day, etc. There's no gray <coughs> um, Is it, it disturbs me a little bit to have... Um, it, it seems like these texts are being interpreted by people who then are suffering from that sense of the binary. In other words, there is no gray. 
Why does it have to be good and evil? Why does it have to be, um, just like you said, body or, or soul? Why does it have to be any of those things? Why can't it just be all? I mean, later in the text it talks about harnessing those and, and you know, the, the, the whole issue of, of what do we do with that evil part of ourselves. Um, they talk about defeating it or living with it or channeling it or all these different things, but it seems like those things are a result of making it black and white. Well, we could just say color. We could just say color. This room is color. It's not very helpful. If you're describing these seats, you need to use a word that describes it as opposed to this color. Yes, we could just say they're both color. Why isn't it? Why isn't it whole? Why isn't it all your heart? Because then it's not helpful to say I love the teal. It's like the color of my eyes, but the contrasting pink is a vibrant kind of energy that connects me to something else about who I am. There is there is helpfulness in distinction. I am someone who appreciates diversity and distinction, and so distinguishing things from each other can be very helpful. It's about not. Talking about them as only opposed. But isn't it childish? I don't like think children, so. Children see the world in a very black and white way. They can't see the gray. They can't see how, when there is a conflict between, um, you know, one one tenant and another tenant, they don't how to re know how to resolve it. it so, I, but I think you're confusing distinction with opposition. I think that's where you're confused. That, they are lifting up ways to understand differing impulses within us. It is all part of the human being. That's the message. But if we don't use language that distinguishes things, if you don't have a diagnosis as a doctor that this is cancer and not diabetes, it's not very helpful to treat the patient. Why can't you just say it's a patient who's ill? Isn't it childish to say cancer versus diabetes? I don't think so. I think... It's about how do we use our ability to discern what we see and how do we then talk about that in a way that helps us say, okay, how do we bring those things into conversation? How do we bring those things into relationship so that the patient comes out healthier at the end of that? They're not setting it up as, they're trying to talk about, we tend to make them oppositional, black or white, and so then they can't talk. But there is black and white, and black and white together make gray. But there has to be black and there has to be white, those primary colors, before there's any gray. The gray is about them talking to each other, right? The gray is about them intermingling. But they are distinct light experiences. And, and that's just the world that we live in, is the world of distinctions and the world of differentiation. And, um, and in general, I think our tradition sees that as a good and positive thing, right? That, that we have many distinctions. We just can't get caught in the distinctions to the point that we make them the focus and then you kind of lost the message, right, of, of the whole business being an expression of the one. All right, I just, I want to move on to get us into some of these um, other texts, and we can come back to whatever questions remain after that. Um, so my note on the margin says, turn to your handout. <laughs> so you've got the first quote there um, from Rabbi Mayer, that you should love God with both of your inclinations, with the good inclination, and the evil inclination. And now we're going to go to a second quote that's going to come from Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 says, you see your number two on your notes? Mm -hmm. And God saw everything that God had made, 
and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So now we're going to see um, Daniel Matt is going to quote some uh, interpretation of that verse. So somebody read, we find a positive aspect. We find a positive aspect of the evil impulse in earlier rabbinic texts as well. For example, on the verse, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 1.31. Nachman, quoting Rabbi Shmuel, comments, Behold, it was very good. This is the evil impulse. Now, is the evil impulse very good? I am astounded. Well, were it not for the evil impulse, a man would never build a house or marry a woman or engender children. A variant reading adds, or engage in business. Okay, so a radical interpretation of that verse. Generally, we read this verse at the end of creation and go, it refers to human beings. Right? Everything else about creation is said it was good. Human beings get created and we said tov me'od. It's very good. Well, it doesn't come after the creation of the human being. It comes after the end of all of it. So the scholars have to ask, really? Then why wasn't it like everything else where God creates this, this, and this and says, and it was good? Right? Why doesn't it say that directly after the creation of the human being, if that's what this means? This doesn't mean that. So some scholars say it means all of creation. Right? Because God was finished. God looks at all of it and says the totality with all of its distinctions, all of its diverse things, grass, plants, animals, humans, sky, firmament, they're all different, they're all distinct, and together, in relationship to each other, they are tov ma'od. They are very good. Okay, lovely. Here we have another interpretation that says it is in fact referring to human beings, but it's referring to the fact that human beings are the only things created with the Yetzer Hara. Meaning, so what's unique about the human being? Not that we're alive, not that we're cells, not, there's nothing, not that we're animated, animals are the same, right? The only thing that distinguishes us in our tradition, early tradition, from the rest of creation is that we have free will, which means we have the capacity to do evil. Dogs can't be bad, according to our tradition. They can't. They don't have the capacity to be bad. They have the capacity to be dogs. They may do things that we don't like, and we label that bad, but they're just being dogs, right? So there is no bad dog, but there, there is the capacity for us to do things that we would consider morally bad. Bless you, Sarah. So that is what it must mean here, that the human being is very good because it's created with the capacity to do evil. So, so the very good refers to the evil impulse. Right? Wow is right. Right? So it's like, wow. Okay? Even the person writing this says, wow, I am astounded. Right? Like, that's how they say, wow. I am astounded. Because why is in this explanation, and uh, this explanation is the Yetzer Hatov good? I mean, the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. How is it good? Without it, what? Without, ah. without bad, you wouldn't have good. Without bad, you wouldn't have good. So that's one thing, basically. Without. If there's no chocolate cake, you're not going to cheat. It's only by putting the chocolate cake out there <laughs> you can be good. All right. So without bad, there's no good. But he goes further. He says it's, it's the driving of the creative impulse. 
is the Yetzer Hara, not the Yetzer The Yetzer Hatov would sit around and navel gaze all day and be blissfully unified with the rest of existence. And that's a lovely thing. That's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing. But there would be no... People. People, because you wouldn't make love. And build boring. And be boring. And not oh, yeah? You want to say more? I talk about making love and you say, <laughs> right? Without that, boring. So, so, right there, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the desire for act to acquire, right? There wouldn't be, oh wait, that's a really nice fill in the blank. I want really nice shoes. Okay, thank you. Again, Maria. Um, so really nice shoes. I really want a pair of those. Well, what do I have to do to get a pair of those? Right? So what do I have to do? So then I have to do something. So I have to be about the world. Again, what I love about this is our tradition is not one that says the best way to be is somewhere locked up, praying all day, right? Meditating on the unification of everything. We're supposed to be doing stuff. We're supposed to be making love. We're supposed to be eating chocolate cake. We're supposed to be wanting shoes and figuring out what business I need to build to get them. Right? We're, that, it's the driving impulse of creativity. And that is what we are supposed to be about. That is a very different way to understand appetite, I think. And desire. Right? And I don't mean desire for blissful union. You know, for the mystical experience. I mean real embodied desire. To my, my daughter walks into a store if we're shopping for clothes and she goes down the racks like this. <laughs> she touches every single garment. She doesn't look at the color. She doesn't care. She touches every single thing all the way down the line. And, when she, and she stops and it's because she likes how something feels. Right? Like that, that desire for, you know, just how it feels against our skin. You know, like a hot bath. The smell of essential oils in the hot bath. Like, like the desire for that is a driving impulse to create, to have amazing, possible, new things in existence. That is glorious. That's what we're supposed to be about. A very different way of understanding appetite. Yeah, but what about when it becomes evil? Ah, ha, ha, ha. Yes. That is the point of this chapter. Yes? What happens when the sun does not resist the harlot? Very good question. All right. So, look at your handout. And look at the very bottom of the front page of your handout. Martin Buber here is expanding on Rav Nachman, expanding on what we just read. So you'll, you'll read it at home if you want. But drop down to where it says two impulses, yes? <coughs> two impulses were instilled side by side in human beings. It is as if the creator gave them to the human to act as two servants, who can fulfill their functions completely only with genuine cooperation. The evil inclination is as necessary as its opposite. Indeed, it is even more necessary. And then we have the familiar text from Breshit Rabbah that we just <coughs> quoted. I love this. 
For this reason, the evil inclination is called the yeast in the dough. Because of the energy and the life force with which God has endowed our souls, without which human beings would stagnate. Because of this, the spiritual level of the human is of necessity a function of the amount of, quote, yeast in them, as is indicated by the Talmud. And so we're going to go down to where it says, the human being turns this impulse into the evil inclination again and again when he separates it, when the human being separates it from its companion, the good inclination. And this is to your point about when does it become evil? I love this quote from Buber right here. By isolating it, human beings turn what was supposed to serve them into their opponent. By isolating it, we turn what could be used by us for generative purposes into our opponent. Human beings are not supposed to beat down the evil inclination within, but to unite it with the good inclination. Thus, according to Rav Nachman, it is through the confrontation rather than the repression of the inclination that human beings can realize their true greatness. So how does it become evil? I believe, I really believe this, that it is true when we split it off. You look at, you look at these cases of you know, priests abusing children, and I'm just like, when you split off a human being's natural desire for connection, and I'm not saying it's the only thing that does it. Celibacy is not the only thing that does it. It isn't. But it arrests some people who go into the priesthood young at this place where it never got expressed. So their peers are 14. Because they're stuck at 14. On that level, right? When we isolate something that, that we consider a desire that is shameful and we lock it up and we don't give it a chance to be in dialogue with the good impulses that we have, then we have a serious potential problem because it's going to come out somewhere. And it's going to come out in ways that are often twisted and distorted that the original appetite wasn't even originally about. Does that make sense? And I think this is a mistake we make all too often. We vilify instincts we vilify desires. We vilify fantasies, longings, um, and call them bad and put them over here. And that's when they have the potential to do real damage and become a true opponent rather than in dialogue with my higher intentions for the good, for healing, for transformation, for wholeness. In dialogue, what might that mean? Ambition is not bad unless you're hurting somebody else to achieve that goal or whatever, you know, that, that position or whatever. But if you have ambition to be, let's say, the senior rabbi of the largest reconstruction synagogue in the world, let's say, is that in and of itself bad? Right? That, that's where we get, kind, especially as women, I think. We get really stuck, right? Like, uh-oh, like, that means I think I'm all that. Or I think, how could I even think that that would be me? Because that means I'm egotistical or something, right? We, and it becomes this crazy thing rather than 
What, what if I check out that ambition and check out that longing? What am I longing for, actually? What, what do I want, actually? What would I do with it, actually? And if you really feel like what you would do is something that serves your higher set of ideals and values and morals, then use the ambition. Because somebody else will, for sure. Like my daughter loves quotes these days. She has them on her computer screen. They change you know, every couple of weeks. And the one that's up there now is, you know, shape the world around you or someone else will. <laughs> that she gets it at 11, that if I don't, and I asked her, you know, what, is that? what do you think that means? <laughs> and she's petting her unicorn. Um, stuffed animal. <laughs> Crazy age. But um, like she's you know, petting her unicorn. She's talking to me about philosophy, saying, and she gets it that if she doesn't act out of what she thinks needs to happen, then somebody who doesn't have the same understanding that she does is going to have it their way. And is that the world she wants to live in? Richard? If we uh, say that too much ambition is bad, why do we say that ambition in the abstract even comes from the evil impulse? Um, because I think so often it isn't tempered. Well, right. But or if it's if not it's, tempered. If, if it's not tempered, that's a bad thing. But that's not tempering the ambition is the bad thing. The ambition is not the bad thing. So there are things that, if they're not tempered, are not necessarily bad things. So I think there are some things, there are a certain flavor of impulses that left unchecked do do bad things. There are some impulses that don't do bad things. Compassion does not lead us to bad things if it's unchecked. Patience does not lead us to bad things if unchecked. Ambition does. If unchecked. If unchecked. But does that mean that the ambition itself... So this goes back to the point. What's the point of distinction? I think, I think there is a distinction between, and maybe in another tradition it's called yin and yang, male and female, active and passive. I, I don't know. In our tradition we use morally charged language to talk about where things tend to go on their own given the human being's kind of situation in the world. That Given the world, given who we are, Judaism understands that without some kind of mitigating influence, unbridled ambition is generally not going to result in good things. I, you can agree or disagree, but that's the tradition. You, you can like that or not like that, but I find that true on some level, that that greed you know, the the desire to for acquisition if left untempered by some other set of values about restraint and respect for others will lead me to do bad things if left unchecked bert say getting back to Daniel Matt, he quotes i think it's a great line where he says Yetzirah is like fertilizer for the soul. <laughs> All right. And he looks at Yetzirah really as being the animating passion that, if you want, lights a fire within its boat, which otherwise we're just blindly following 
someone else's So fertilizer for the soul. Fertilizer helps things grow. What is fertilizer by itself? Oh, boy. <laughs> I didn't say it. Yeah. All right. So, Ruben? Well, um, we simple souls like examples. So we talk about uniting the good inclination with the bad. Yes, sir. Uh, to um, achieve uh, whatever it is that you want to achieve, and it's okay. Can we have some examples of this? Of? Of uniting, well, in, in, in your case, of, of wanting to uh, become the, the, the rabbi of the greatest institution, whatever. Greatest living institution ever. <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't have to be the example. Any example will serve. I, I'd like an example or two of how by uniting the, uh, the good and the bad. So when you saw Blanche for the first time and the flutter in your heart and probably in other parts of your body told you, this is a human being. I, I feel desire to be in her presence. I feel desire to be in her company. I want it exclusively now that I think about it. I don't want her to be in anybody else's company as much as she's in my company. That could be seen as acquisitive. I want her all to myself, right? If it's wedded to (laughs) higher ideals of respect and truly wanting to know another human being's soul intimately so that you can heal what's going on in your own, that needed what only Blanche had to bring you, that when you really respect her as a human being with her own right to her own opinions, even if she disagrees with you, and and you commit to living a life together to share and transform each other into being something bigger than you two were separately, that desire becomes something glorious. It becomes an example to the rest of us about what's possible over the long term, watching the two of you in your 90s be the most amazing couple I've ever encountered. Could you put that in writing? (laughs) (laughs) Does that help? uh, Yeah, it helps. Um, Somebody would say, why why are you so... um, uh, why, why do you want her exclusively? Right. And why can't she have other men? Yeah. <laughs> I won't tell. You won't tell. Good one. Okay. So, all right. All right. Thanks. So, of course. So we're going to drop down to this other part uh, on page 88 that is wonderful and amazing. That... This last paragraph, like the third line... The wild flavor of Yetzer Hara is an essential ingredient of holiness. This radical notion appears in a Hasidic interpretation of a passage from the Talmud. The Blessed Holy One said to Israel, My children, this is from Kedushin, I created Yetzer Hara and I created Torah as its seasoning. Now what's radical about this statement? Here in the Talmud, the point seems to be that Torah can temper the dangerous effects of the evil impulse or serve as its antidote. But the Magid of Mezrich finds a more radical meaning. The metaphor does not fit. Why? Seasoning is added to meat, and meat is the main dish, not the seasoning. 
Yet here, God says the Torah is the seasoning. And so it is. Yetzer hara is the main thing. One has to serve God with the ecstasy drawn from the Yetzer hara. And is that bad? No. No. What he's saying is it's shocking because the metaphor isn't what we would expect. That Torah is the seasoning for the Yetzirah. Well, seasoning is what you put on the main course. So he's saying, the Magid of Mezrach is saying, so the Talmud is essentially saying the Yetzirah is the main course. Torah is there to season it. What does that mean? How could that be? And he says, because all those mitzvot that are in the Torah should be drawing from the raw energy, the protein of the Yetzer Hara. <coughs> yeah. Maybe I'm just um, too hedonistic, but I, I think it makes all the sense in the world. Every single one of the, of the seven deadly sins is the, the underlying behavior of the, of the sin is not bad. Absolutely. Right? Gluttony. Yep. Eating is not bad. It's eating too much. Right. Right? All of the deadly sins are like that. So it makes much more sense that the, that the Torah is, is, a, is a controlling element and brings out the, <coughs> the flavors without letting them get out of Lovely. Out of hand. Lovely. So we don't have the seven deadly sins, right? You know, cardinals or whatever they are in our tradition because we have instead sanctified the application of our appetite to the world. So that every time we eat, we say a bracha over everything we eat so that eating becomes a sanctified act so that it's not gluttony. And we have laws of kashrut so that we limit the categories of what we eat. So that we don't eat just anything we want because that would be right and kind of encouraging that, that gluttonous Impulse. Rather, we think thoughtfully before we sit down. Is this kosher? I'm not saying this is how we might do it as Jews, but but traditionally that's how it was. You know, is it kosher? Is it not? Did I say a bracha? Did I not? Did I bench after the meal? Did I say the long grace after the meal? Right now that I'm sated, am I remembering to thank God now that I'm sated? It's easy when you're hungry. Quick, say a bracha so I can eat. Right, grace. You okay? Done. Eat. Right, and then you're done. In our tradition, you sit down and do the big benching, the big blessing after the meal, when you're sated. Right. So all those things about you know sex, you get double credit for sex on Shabbos within a married exclusive relationship. <laughs> so right, that that sex is a good thing. That passion is a good thing. The the impulse you know to unify and feel pleasure in the body with someone else is a wonderful thing, and. It needs to be tempered so that it doesn't become something that's damaging and something that is hurtful and something that's even disrespectful you know, to ourselves, certainly can be to others. Um, so exactly right that, that, that for us as Jews, it may not seem so radical, but, but when you think about spiritual teachings and spiritual texts, even within our own tradition, I think a lot of people don't know this, that, that really, really, to draw in all of those things that normally get put, you know, as somehow bad, the tradition is saying is the basis of the energy through which we do all of those things in the world that we're about as human beings. Maybe I've got this wrong, but it, it sounds, do I have this wrong? 
In Jungian analysis, there's the shadow, and if you embrace the shadow, the thing you're the most afraid of, that usually gives you the insight to integrate that into your good part, or what the light part would be, and that makes you whole and healthy. Is that the idea? I think those those impulses within the two, you know, bodies of work are, are similar. Yes, because I, I think. I think it's a natural, I, you know what, I have an anthropology background, and we talk about terrestrial human culture, THC. Um, and in anthropology, in cultural anthropology, terrestrial human culture, THC stands for the universal impulse within any society that has ever been. There are some things, burial, marriage, there are some things that exist within all human cultures that have ever been. Um, and I believe this is part, for me, of THC is an understanding that there's a shadow, a dark, call it evil, call it black, call it whatever, and the light, the white, the good, you know, whatever labels we want to use, that we understand that by denying the one, its existence and its place and its energy in our lives, we, we cause incredible rifts that leave room for terrible, terrible things to happen. And that it is only in dialogue in relationship between the two that we are whole and therefore able to behave in the world in a way that contributes to more wholeness, which for us, of course, is the root of the word peace. To say, I think the whole thing comes together in the next paragraph. Okay. The challenge to convey passion and ecstasy without harming yourself or others. The challenge is to convey the Yetzer is libido. If, if Yetzer is libido, then perhaps Yetzer Hatov is conscience. To serve God with both impulses is to find the balance between libido and conscience, not simply repressing Yetzer Hatov, yet not allowing it to dominate. Too much spice can ruin <laughs> Thank you. So, so, yes, I have these sentences highlighted to read, because I, I like the distinction rather than necessarily, you know, evil and good, because we've seen our reactions to those terms, um, libido and conscience, that, that both are necessary, both are valuable, and... Um, it's finding the balance. And it's finding a balance. And it's, I think, for us, part of it is about how do we encourage the conversation? Because half the time... I don't know what the heck the impulse is. Right? I feel it. It comes up. I react and I shove it down. Because I got to get to the next phone call. I got to get to the next thing. Right? Where does it happen when my kid says, Mommy, Mommy, for the 14th time? I go, What? <laughs> there it is. Right? So we don't do a very good job in our daily spiritual lives of kind of checking in with where are my impulses coming from? Like what's, what's going on exactly? And what's happening? Can I just hold that for a minute? Like even in, uh, you, know, you know, I did the program at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, the two-year program, and one of the things that we were taught in mindfulness practice was next time you stub your toe or hit your funny bone on something, can you not go, can you not swear even under your breath, and can you go, huh, interesting, 
I just stubbed my toe. That thing's been there all day. And I just walked right into it. And that sensation in my toe, hmm, it's not pleasant. Wow, right? So in other words, what we generally do, we get sensation and or a hit of, you know, something and we react. Whatever that reaction is, we react. And mindfulness practice is all about like how do we just kind of tamp down the need to respond right away to whatever it is unconsciously and can we just kind of check in with wow I'm feeling a little edgy can I just sit with that wow I think I just broke my toe I think I just broke my toe <laughs> let me discern what needs to happen next rather than throwing the music stand necessarily across it but so how how do I take a second to like how do I encourage the conversation between right those parts of me how do I hold whatever's happening with some curiosity and some space and just say huh I'm feeling something I don't know what it is but rather than react out of it snapping or you know whatever it is I might do barking at somebody can I just let it be what it is without needing to respond directly to it like oh I think I'm feeling some anxiety I'm a little anxious or I think I'm feeling sad actually yeah, like, and just, just let it be and just hold it there with some room and then have it we're able to then meet it with what is our desire around this do I need to take some time right for whatever that sadness is about and just give it a little room and tell, tell, tell the next person I'm going to be five minutes late for my appointment what, like, what if we really how do we encourage the dialogue the relationship that you're talking about, Linda, you know, happening so that they can inform one another. And that's where I'm really curious. I'm really interested um, in how do we Jews, progressive Jews, do this today? How are we going to encourage that conversation to happen today? So, like, are you talking about, like, reframing and integration? Like, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Those are terms, I guess, that might could be. I don't know. I... I'm talking about the Yetzer Hara. We have libido. We have impulses. We have stuff that comes, and we tend to react or we shut it down. And what this seems to be saying to me, this mystical text, is that's not helpful. That's when it can become evil, is when we split it off. How do I allow it to be there without needing to let it take over everything? And how do I use its fuel... You know, to move, to move forward, just to know a little bit about, oh, I didn't realize I was sad. What's going on? Oh, it's getting close to my dad's yard site. Oh, right. The trees are turning in a way that makes me know, right, April's almost. Right? So, wow. Right? And so, just going to be with that and hold that so that then I can use that. I love my dad. You know, like, to, to kind of move forward into whatever that means. Listening is listening important. Listening to what's going on around you and listening, like stepping back and listening to your gut response or your impulse and then figuring it out. I think that's what you're making, intimating. Um, but I think it's a practice that many, many, um, like the Buddhists, practice this too. Understanding that you don't have to knee jerk, but that you can be quiet. And listen, and that's listening to yourself and what's around you. 
listening to ourselves, listening to what's around us and how hard that is for us to do. And it makes me think, what you just said makes me think, and how often do we react to it coming from other people? Like rather than, huh, I just got barked at. I didn't do anything. I asked like, you know, what, how was your day? Whatever, like I like your earrings. But it's so, but we tend to then come back, you know, we have our own reaction. And what does it mean to really listen for, you know, someone else's pain? that's clearly coming out, right? And, and wow, what would that mean? Like if we could really listen deeply to someone else's yater, you know, stuff going on and go, wow, she must have had a really bad day because I didn't do anything and, and I got really snapped at. So, wow, I'm sorry. It feels like it's really hard. Can I sit? Is there anything, is there any way I can be present to that other than reacting and and pushing back kind of out of my, my own stuff. So listening is critical. I don't think it's an accident that this follows Shema Yisrael. It is not an accident this love God with both your heart's business follows listen up, Israel. Listen. You can't listen if you're talking. You can't listen if you're up in your heads. <coughs> Richard, were you trying to raise your hand? Um, I, I can't tell. Yeah, um, <laughs> I was trying to sort of crystallize my question. Okay, so certain things sort of follow naturally from the existence of Yezahara. Mm-hmm. So basically the, the basic creative impulse, the desire to acquire, the desire, libido, all, all the rest of it. What things come what things come naturally from Yezahara? Forgiveness, but, kindness, but, gentleness, respect, love, but caring. Then, but if those things come naturally, why do we need to be reminded by Torah to do these good things? Like, I'm for confused. Example, like for example, in the, in the in Torah, we're told to you know treat treat the stranger kindly because you know have compassion for the stranger because you used to be stranger. Mm-hmm. Okay. If the if the Yetzer Hatov sort of proceeded normally. The same way that Yetzir Harah proceeds normally, we would sort of intuit compassion. We wouldn't need to be taught that we need to be compassionate. I don't understand the question. Xenophobia is too big a force. So we have to love that we're told by Torah, you have to consciously kick in your compassion because your instinct is xenophobic. That's who you are as a human being. And that's a big okay, force. So we have to be so we have to be taught by the seasoning on the Eitzer Harah to make room for the Eitzer Hatov to kick in, or allow the Eitzer Hatov. I think is what this is saying, or how I understand it. That's helpful for me is let the Eitzer Hatov inform that that passion for you know. Uh oh, they're not one of us, right? Can you take that energy and say, all right, so it's wonderful that we're an us, that we're a group, that we're a clan, that we're a family. We love that. Now, how do I back off my fear you know, of, of that being somehow under threat by saying, I know what it was like not to have that because I was a stranger in the land of Egypt or I sat alone at lunch in sixth grade. And so I'm going to invoke that feeling and response Right to temper that charge to protect my family and say, okay, so can would you like to sit with our family? It doesn't mean you're in my family yet because I don't know 
that you're safe for my family. So it's not bad that I want to check you out and keep you over here because I love my family. And I mean family, you know, broadly. It needs to be tempered with, all right, well, you don't know Richard. Maybe he's a decent guy, right? And so why don't you join us for lunch? Does that make sense? So it tempers that energy, but doesn't make it, like, go away because that's bad. It's it's another something bringing to bear on harnessing that energy for what we believe is a better outcome for everybody. Bert? In that sense, the Yetzirah is the fuel. Yes. It's the fuel that is supposed to, I mean, because Yetzirah tolls, I don't think, and I think this is what Robert was getting at, doesn't have a huge amount of energy. It has brightness, it has goodness, it has thought, but it doesn't have that raw energy that we sometimes all feel, not quite knowing where it comes from. And to me, what a lot of this is, is just a recognition of what the human experience is. And that is, we have those things we think we should do, and then we have those other forces inside of ourselves that animate us that we don't always understand where they're coming from. At least to me what this says is, as you say, let's take that energy our job is not to destroy that energy, but to take that energy and harness it or direct it for Yetzir HaTov. And it's only in the interaction of both of those things together that we'll be able to move forward. Because yes. the Yetzir HaTov without the Yetzir HaRah is kind of just sitting there. It's not, it, 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 it's not animated. It's not passionate. It's not out doing stuff. And the Yetzir Hurrah can just be out there doing stuff, but without any content to it. Yes, so I thank you. So I think the interaction, or I, I like the fertilizer. <laughs> I am so glad that works for you. <laughs> um, That's why I, I don't like the term Yetzer Hurrah, because to me, Hurrah is very negative and, um, and bad or evil. And I don't find all those passions and everything necessarily evil, but just as, as Bert said, but energizing and, and so forth. And, uh, and to me, it doesn't matter where it's coming from, but where it's going. What, what if we use the word potential instead of impulse? I think that would, I think that would, um, that would help us. The mystical tradition has a whole nother relationship to potential versus actual. A whole nother relationship to what's in potential and what is actualized. Bagashmut is the term for actualized and other stuff that's in potential um, is not yet present. It, it, this is a different, this is a different distinction between what isn't yet and what has been actualized. This is talking about two, you know when you take a battery and you have a negative charge and a positive charge, what if we were to think about it that way that it doesn't, it doesn't have to be so laden with, I think, that's, that's Our frustration with the word evil is the problem, not the, not the message of the text. Our problem is we're stuck on the word evil because of where we're at in our Western binary setting. Right. We get hung up on this word evil. This is a liberating text that I believe comes to say it's about a battery. And it's got a plus side and a minus side, and they are both equally important if you're going to make anything go. You gotta have both. 
One's called negative. Sorry. One's called positive. Sorry. That's how it is. Now, you can just talk about the scientific properties of what makes it negative and what makes it positive. Okay. But we have those words. We then load stuff onto those words that makes us more or less comfortable calling it positive. Why is it better? That's why it's positive. Like, they're just forces. And so I think that's actually what the text is trying to come to say is they're both forces. And how do we use them? The, you know, like Bert said, one is rather passive. One is very active. And something that's active that runs amok can be damaging. Um, you know, that which is passive just turns into blah. You know, which is, it's a lovely blah, but it's kind of blah. And the rabbis have um, this this midrash that I love when we say, one of the names for God is <coughs> life of the worlds. Why is there an S on worlds? Because <coughs> there's this midrashic tradition that this wasn't the first world that God created. God created first a world created just out of God's aspect of deen, of judgment, of justice, of what's fair. And what happened to that world? It busted apart into a million pieces because it was too hard. And then God created a world out of God's rachamim, God's aspect of compassion. And what happened to that world is it just kind of went, right, it just became blob, right? It was too, there were no boundaries, there was no rigor. And so it just kind of, you know, became nothing, <laughs> ooze. Um, and it needed both Dean and Rachamim, which you know I kind of understand as this active, passive, yin, yang, black, white, evil, good. You know, that it needs both in order to be dynamic and responsive um, at the same time. So, Judy? Beautifully said. That, that it's not just you will love God with both of these hearts, both of these bets. We first have to figure out how to love that other part of us. We have to figure out how to integrate, you know, if you will, um, that part of us that we so often tend to shunt away. The part of us that we want to split off. You know, the part of us that we're ashamed of. You know, the part of us that we're embarrassed about. Right? That whatever that. We have to first love that because only when we love that too, we don't have to like it. We have to love it. We don't have to like it. When we can, that's only when we can do that can we then turn that outward to love another human being with both of their hearts and then ultimately, right, the creative force in this universe that we call God that manifests in all of it. And our challenge is to, I believe, continue to find practices and ways to bring together those different aspects of ourselves 
um, so that we can live truly into understanding them as necessary to each other. Um, and I'm always interested in what's harnessing them, right? Where are we, ta- where are we talking about the harness? What are we harnessing it for? And that's something, obviously, I've given my life to thinking about and caring about and want to figure out how we can do that together. How do we figure out what we're harnessing it towards? And let's, let's do it. Let's do that together. Bimhirabi uh, Aminu, it should come speedily and in our days that we bring together out of that dialogue uh, the Messianic age. Yimea Mashiach. Have a wonderful rest of your week.